Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs in a true crime, pop culture, TV, other podcasts. And this week, what do you do when chemists at a state drug lab have tampered with evidence for years? Netflix tells us in How to Fix a Drug Scandal. Plus, the crime drama Ozark returns to the streaming service. Netflix will tell you if it should be on your binge list as season three has dropped. Join me to talk about that stuff and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and my favorite guy who's growing his hair long and doesn't look creepy at all, Kevin Flynn. <laughs> Hello, Kevin. I, I sense some uh, some sarcasm in that You're comment. turning into Nick Offerman. You're turning into, like, Nick Offerman from um, Devs. You not, are. Not Nick Offerman from Parks and Rec? No. One big mustache? No. <laughs> no, but I love you anyway. And we even had a kiss yesterday, which was very exciting. A kiss. <laughs> a kiss. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Love in the time of corona. That's right. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and our favorite certified cat lady and market basket photographer, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Yes, hello. I had an exciting trip to the grocery store today. Where they have like um, the aisles marked, you can only go up and down certain ways. Um, it's it's big drama at Market Basket. I know. And by the way, those were great photos. And I almost uh, asked if I could purchase some for my news organization. I may be in touch, Laura Bricker. All right. I may That's be in good. touch. That's good. And finally, our captain of oak cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, our Patreon book club host, and famous UFO podcaster, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. How you doing, kid? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) That was aggressive. He's been abducted by the aliens. That's not Toby. I was trying to get my, I was trying to get my Springfield on. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, kid. So before we begin the show, we just want to do a little bit of business. Kevin, can you very briefly, I asked you to do this last minute, Mm -hmm. tell our listeners why they may be hearing some additional ads right now. And can you tell them why? They should be tolerant and happy about it instead of resentful and angry. Go. Okay. (laughs) This is happening uh, throughout our network uh, in order to keep these advertisers from canceling in this uh, time of uncertainty. They're throwing added value uh, spots, so they're doubling up, throwing things on so that they're they're heard more often. And we're saying yes. We're We're saying saying yes. Because we want to be good partners. We make zero dollars on those extra ads. It's not about gouging our listeners' ears. It's about doing what we can to support the advertisers and convince them that the podcasting industry is healthy. Yes. So be tolerant. Be patient. Please don't complain on social media. And if you do... No, that we're like, just going to tell you. We're six minutes into this podcast already. Exactly. We're just doing what we can to keep this business afloat, guys. Um, also, on tonight's Patreon After Show, which will be dropping at the same time as this show, mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about a little bit, going a little bit deeper into the world of how to fix a drug scandal by hearing about the wild country that is known 
as Western Massachusetts. Sounds like you're digging in my I'm not. Okay. And we're also going to be talking about Toby's- Because I'm from Western Massachusetts. Hit UFO podcast, Strange Arrivals. Yeah. And the incredible piece of tape that gets dropped in episode two. I want to talk to him a little bit more about that. So we're doing that in the Crime Writers on After Show, which you can listen to right now at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And Kevin- there's something else special dropping in our Patreon feed this week. What is going on over there? It's going to be a special one-time podcast from Kevin Flynn. What's it called? It's Ooh. called The Coldest Cut. Uh-huh. I'll be reading an article that Rebecca and I wrote in 2013 about a cold case. Huh. So it's a special little mini podcast for our listeners. It's like an audio book of an article? I got music oh. and shit. It's good. <laughs> it's good. And my voice was really good that day, so... Uh, bear with me. It was one of my better performances in some time. All right. So continuing on the new feature we launched last episode, Kevin, who are our patron saints of the week this week? Our patron saints are Karen O'Sullivan and Deanne Bickford. Yay! So thanks so much. Bless you. <laughs> I feel sacrilegious or something. They're patron saints. They are Patreon patron saints. Thank you guys for supporting our show. And thank you everyone who supports us on Patreon at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Are you guys ready to start this week's podcast? Yes. Let's do it. If the government wants to convict a defendant, then the government and all of its actors have to be above reproach. They have to exemplify the law-abiding behavior they demand from all of us, and they've got to prove it. When Massachusetts State Police discover a chemist has been tampering with evidence at the drug lab, it opens a legal Pandora's box. Sonia Farrick has been skimming and using narcotics from samples she's supposed to be testing, which calls into question the convictions of thousands of people. She did not have all the facts. Nobody had all the facts, and as soon as this happened, there was always going to be a question as to what was reliable, what was unreliable at that lab. Meanwhile, in the state's other drug lab, investigators learn that the reason for Annie Dukin's remarkable productivity is that she hasn't actually been testing any of the samples the police gave her. If it merely looked like narcotics, she'd certified that's what they were. Almost from the beginning of her tenure, doing something called dry labbing. Where she didn't test at all. She would look at something and say that it was the drug, heroin, cocaine, whatever, but she didn't really test it. From the director behind Mommy, Dead and Dearest and I Love You, Now Die, comes Netflix's four-part How to Fix a Drug Scandal. We follow the reporters, lawyers, and defendants seeking answers on how the system failed and why the state tried to cover it up and what to do about it. The documentary also brings light to the troubled life of one of the chemists whose personal addiction upended the scales of justice. We will be talking about plot points from How to Fix a Drug Scandal. So to get our spoiler-free review of this documentary, just go to the time code indicated in our show notes. Now, Kevin, Aaron Lee Carr, who directed this documentary... Mm-hmm. Uh, produced some of the most sensational true crime documentaries we've ever watched, including Mommy, Dead, and Dearest, also the Cannibal Cop one, Mm -hmm. which I didn't say in the intro, and also I Love You Now Die, the Michelle Carter story. This is very different. It's a much closer, more intimate, more specific, more criminal justice-minded doc. What do you think of this big switch for Aaron Lee Carr, and what do you think of the way this story was told? Well, I, I really like it. You know, it is a different stylistic direction than some of those other ones, although... 
the three other documentaries that you point to do sort of talk about, you know, larger questions within the justice system. Uh, so it's it's similar in that way, but it is a, a, a much different documentary. I like it even though it does have some structural problems. It isn't really balanced, I feel like, between the two scandal stories. Mm. I don't know if they should. Should it be? That's a question. Because there's not, it's not like really, you know, magic time code, I'd say, where like, you have to do 40% of this and 30%. And it just it just sort of what kind of seems right. Mm. But the, the Dukin story, which is the chemist in greater Boston. Bananas. You know, it's just certifying stuff without testing it. That story seemed like it got trapped somewhere between it's a sidebar to the Ferrick story mm-hmm. or that it's a parallel story. Yeah. It seemed like it, got, it wasn't either and just kind of got stuck in the middle. Yeah, but. That shit was bananas, was it? It not? was bananas, yeah. <laughs> but I'm just talking sort of about the overall four parts, how much time yeah. was devoted, and did it seem like the stories were intertwined enough? Yeah. Now, Laura Bricker, you have some personal experience with yeah. drug Drugs. labs and evidence and stuff. Can you talk about that a little bit? And how you felt watching like this, these disastrous labs in this documentary? Yeah, it was pretty freaking horrific to see the condition, particularly of that Amherst lab. I mean, it was just like... Super depressing. You know, it didn't look like a professional sort of modern lab at all. There was stuff everywhere. Um, You know, one of the things I used to do a lot of when I was a defense investigator is when people get pulled over for uh, suspected drunk driving, they get a second breath sample which they can always have independently tested. So one of my jobs when that happened was to go into our evidence locker, sign it out following all the proper you know, protocols, and then drive that breath sample to the woman that did like defense testing. Um, and she had a lab in her house, and it looked better than the lab in the Amherst drug lab. You know, just watching this, I'm just, it's, it's, and I know they talked about it a little bit, but it's amazing that it was at that level with nobody realizing like what the fuck's going on here. For so long. Toby, what do you think of the scope and style of this documentary? You know, Aaron Lee Carr, as we said, made some like pretty sensational films, which we've talked about on this show. Mommy Dead and Dearest is probably the splashiest of them, right? Oh, the Cannibal Cop one. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we did it on the podcast. We didn't but, do that yeah. on the podcast. We've seen it. It's 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 really something. It's great, but it's it's really something. And of course, Mommy Dead and Dearest is is bananas. Uh, but what do you think of what I see as like sort of a pared down, much more intimate story told in four parts? Here, does it work for you? Yeah, it does, and, and it is striking, especially you know having watched the Tiger King. Uh, fairly recently which is like turning this weird little thing into like opera that this is so it 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 makes it seem very intimate when in fact sort of the consequences are vast in in the state so i i think it was effective you know the combination of showing especially with uh, uh sonia focusing on that human story and then really following two or three lawyers and their work on it. I think it's I think it's the right choice. It takes what what could be sort of a huge faceless scandal and kind of gives you somebody to latch onto. We have met in the course of our talking about true crime documentaries some really wonderful defense lawyers along the way. Of course, there's Laura Nye Ryder from uh, Brandon Dassey's team. And of course, there's David Rudolph from The Staircase. Dean Strang. Uh, Dean Strang. Oh, heartthrob Dean Strang. Is Luke Ryan not 
the most lovable defense attorney we have ever met in any documentary. Laura Bricker, I put this question to you. What do you think of Luke Ryan, who emerges as this hero protagonist in this story? They found the only person who did anything wrong was me. (sighs) And it tore into me, called me unprofessional, said I made baseless and negligent allegations, and, and really just made a mockery of what I'd been doing for the last few years. I love him so much. Um, sorry, Ken. Actually, Ken even <laughs> loved him. Oh, my God. Wait, Ken watched this with me, and he's like, boy, he goes, that guy, if it wasn't for that guy, nothing would have happened. Like, um, this guy, I mean, in the beginning, we see him playing basketball. I love that. Um, he's just super approachable in the beginning, and that's sort of like the first impression you get of him. But as this case goes on, you just see like his level of dedication to his clients and seeing this through. And the part where I started cheering for him is when he got those emails with all the stuff about the prosecutors wanting to cover shit up. I was like, yeah, Luke is the man. I was like so excited. (laughs) And then at the end, they give him credit and he's just drinking his little Sam Adams. And I'm like, you know what? That guy is a hero. And he's just like super dedicated. And I'm so glad that they focused on him in this documentary. For those who missed our Facebook Live this week, My brother-in-law called in, and we talked about this. He works in one of those courthouses in western Massachusetts, and I'll save it for the after show on the inside scoop on all these characters, but he does say that Luke Ryan is just like that. He's a wonderful guy, very sharp. He's a mensch. And what you see is what you get. Yeah. I mean, I should say what you saw on the documentary is who, who he truly is. And by the way, he seems to have a fantastic fade move on the basketball court, does he not Toby Ball? I was, I was studying the moves just in case sometime we meet on a court. Toby, isn't that this like incredibly satisfying arc with him? I mean, sort of take his defense attorney stuff out of it. You know, he obviously works with his clients that we hear about, uh, one of whom has a very tragic ending. But Luke Ryan also becomes a target of the state you know, in this like very shoddy investigation that is done looking into prosecutorial misconduct around these cases, basically Luke Ryan is called out as being like a malicious actor by the state of Massachusetts. And then later he gets to actually defend himself in court by questioning prosecutors and cops who were involved in these cases and completely vindicates himself and the entire like defense system who had been embroiled in this. I don't know. I found that rare and immensely satisfying to see this good guy actually win in this way. What do you think, Toby? Have you never read a John Grisham novel? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is. I I mean, it's 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 like fiction. Yeah. Um, Plus, he gets a he gets to uh, (laughs) he gets to question that woman who said that she didn't like him in an email. Yeah. She's like, I don't like this guy. Yeah. It's like, oh, what does it say at the, what does it say in this email? Um, yeah, so I mean, it, it is satisfying, and I think it's also it's one of those things where the, he he had no, uh, like, I he, I don't even know how he could have had an expectation of success after a while because everybody else was kind of dropping away on this, and he was the one who was keeping after it. And there was no reason to be certain that there was going to be any kind of smoking gun in these files. I mean, I think he says he was just doing due diligence. And then suddenly it opens everything up. Yeah. And I guess they kind of talk a little bit about the numbers. But when this happened, I mean, this was a huge, huge deal. Yeah. I mean, it's thousands of people. Right. Not necessarily getting let out of prison, but having their records cleaned because of this. Right. Who had already served their time. 
but we're having to say, yeah, I've got a felony uh, when they're going for job interviews and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a really big thing. Kevin, what did you think of the fact that a Patriots game was used as a key clue? It's just, it's typical. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> that all the guys they interview are Irish. <laughs> Connolly and Sullivan and Brian. But I actually do have a style question for yeah. you. Um, Farrick did, was not interviewed on camera for this documentary, although right. her mother and sister were. Mm-hmm. And really access to, I mean, they got everybody except for Dukin and Farrick, really, in this documentary. Correct, yeah. But they did make the stylistic choice to you know, use her on the stand testimony and recreate it with an actress. I don't think that anyone had a clue. We all got in at slightly different times. People would go home, someone would go out to lunch. I don't feel that my productivity worsened at all at that time. I never had fellow workers question my work. Which, by the way, the first time I saw this documentary, I watched it. I had to watch it on my phone because I was watching screeners mm-hmm. so I could do the Netflix interview. And so I completely missed the text. That said, like, this thought is, it was her. And I, and I, when I, I interviewed Aaron Lee Carr, and like, I had this one embarrassing moment where I was like, wow, that interview footage was really incredible. And she was like, yeah, those are recreations. You know, and I was like, no, I, I guess I missed that tiny bit of text. Anyway, uh, when I went back and watched it again, of course, I caught that. However, it was a stylistic choice and it was a restrained recreation. But do you think it was necessary? Are you glad they did it that way? Or do you think it was. Yeah, you know, you this, is, this is kind of a bold choice because we do see this. A lot of, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to put visuals to what is just on paper, right? We have things like uh, we've seen them use animation and usually recreations. Maybe they'll do like a page scan where you see the, you know, the type come up, fill the screen or whatever. But there's so much reliance on that material to tell the story that it seems like, you know, you could split it a lot of ways, but the only way really to do it would be to have an actress read through the lines. And because it's, um, done verbatim and it's done it's understated i think it works but i don't i wouldn't recommend doing this in a bunch of other documentaries if it was just a little clip then i think that's hokey they really had to rely on her and this was an important deposition because it does tell the whole story so you can probably pull that uh, that rabbit out of the hat once this was the time to do it laura didn't like it laura why didn't you like it um i just found it super annoying i don't know <laughs> I, I, the whole every time it would come on i'd be like oh here we go again i'm like and it just i just didn't like the way it was like the portrayal i liked what they did at the end better where they had the audio recordings of the actual trial sitting here today do you believe that everything had been turned over as you told uh, judge kinder back in september of 2013 i can't say either way to date i haven't seen any of the documents in this matter she hadn't reviewed a single document not one and therefore she had no idea whether anything had been turned over and they had still photos of the actual people. For me, I liked that better. I think this to me, I just kind of felt like it was kind of like forced and it was just a little bit too, I don't know. It just didn't didn't work for me. I was just going to say, I went through the same thing with Strange Arrivals where we had transcript. Mm-hmm. And so it was, we were trying to figure out how to make it compelling rather than having me sort of in a monologue read off what they said. We did make the decision to get actors to do it, but it was something we talked a lot about, but it just didn't seem like me reading line after line of hypnosis (laughs) transcript was going to be super compelling for the listener. Yeah. So I could see why they did it, but they leaned on that a lot. Yeah. 
like she was doing like she was freebasing in bathrooms and cooking you know, crack traipsing around the lab and all kinds of things well there was a decision to really portray Sonia Farrick in a really sympathetic way I mean we talk a lot about her childhood in the documentary we hear about you know her um star status in school, you know, being a girl playing on a football team and that, you know, getting a lot of attention for that. A star science student at, I think she went to WPI, right? She went to like a good school and, you know, looking for a job as a chemist and then having this moment where she's like, I just want to have a regular life and be able to buy a house. So I'm going to move from this job in Boston to Western Massachusetts so I can maybe buy a house there and stuff. And I do think it's important in in this story to unpeel the layers of normalcy that somebody can have before addiction takes them down a road like this. And I don't know, there was something about the way that was done with her. And, and the reason I disagree with you, Kevin, about the um, the structure of it with Annie Dukin stuff is that Annie Dukin is a liar. I mean, she's just a liar. She's just like, like so the, the motivations, like they sort of have these weird parallels between them as kids where she was also a star. But do you know blah, blah. why she lied? No. Do you know why um, Sonia Farrick Yeah. Smoked crack. So are you saying that there that was that's what you think was missing? I'm I'm saying that yeah. you get a more complete picture of one than okay. the other. Well, that may be yeah. so. You, that no, being you totally said, do. Yeah. I guess I guess my question though, Toby, is do you feel empathy or sympathy for Sonia Farrick? Of course, knowing of course that her you know being an addict, taking the controlled substances, stealing the evidence, and you know ingesting it messed up a whole bunch of cases. But as a human being with a substance abuse issue, I mean, did you find yourself feeling sympathy for her as a character? Yeah. A large part of it is a tragedy, which is that part of her life. They make it sound as though she's on the other side of it at this point. But yeah, the terrible decisions that she was making, I think, were largely caused by her disease of addiction. It seems incredibly worse by... The access she has all the time, the idea that you would be an addict and then your entire day is spent like handling the stuff that you're addicted to. It seems like some kind of weird like existential crisis situation, which is every single day I'm going to spend nine hours just being tempted again and again and again. And that's that's the central part of my life. And part of it was there was basically no oversight, which was like the one thing, like, I don't necessarily disagree with Kevin, although I kind of feel like the Annie Dukin story is one that we've seen before, but maybe in other professions. But it reminded me a little bit, I think it's Stephen Glass. Was he the guy who was at Harper's? Yeah. But it seems like a similar thing of somebody trying to excel beyond what their already kind of high ceiling is. Mm. And so I kind of felt like that. I mean, it, there may have been something really interesting. It also seems like there wasn't going to be any cooperation from her or her family. So it might have been harder to get that story. But I thought one of the really interesting things about the documentary is the fact that the, those cases aren't entwined in any way, except for the fact that they both work for the same state. Yeah, they work for the the same, I guess, state organization. And that it shows just how inept the oversight was that you have these two very different people doing very different things for very different reasons in two physically separate places. And both of them just throwing up red flags right and left. And nobody does anything about it. Mm. You know, they just kind of skate. 
And that to me was like such an indictment because it's not, it wasn't like they figured out some way to get past things. You know, there, there wasn't some secret about how I can, you know, fudge the stats or, or steal some drugs or whatever. It's just two separate people being engaged in this stuff in different ways for different reasons. And neither one of them got caught until way, way past when it would have been reasonable for somebody to have noticed. So Laura, I have a question for you. Okay. Have you ever sent a fake email to somebody pretending that somebody was interested in you, even though you're married to Fireman Ken, just so that you could have a weird <sighs> flirtation with some prosecutor? Have you done that, Laura Bricker? Uh, no. <laughs> what did you think of that little Annie Dukin detail? And what did you think of the fact that they got that prosecutor to... Uh, Talk about how this, I mean, I know that like we're not really digging into things that like matter here, but I was completely yeah. fascinated by that little side story. Yeah, that was just kind of bonkers that the fact that it took on sort of the legs that it did and got to the point that it did. Um, but, I, you know, I kind of feel like Kevin did. Like, I don't feel like I actually even remember that much about Annie's story because so much of this documentary I felt like was focused on Sonia. So, I mean, that part to me, it was like kind of like a blip in the overall um story of this documentary and I was like oh that's interesting and then we moved on you know there have been some things I will say I remember there was a case in my area within the last few years where there was uh, a relationship that may have occurred between an attorney and I think their client wow um, mm. and uh, you know and then actually one of the cases that you guys covered and I won't name names but there was an attorney in that case that everyone always suspected had a little something something going on so uh, we'll um, talk about that after the show because I think okay. I know what you're talking about um, so Toby Ball are you going to become a lobbyist for Jewel after we finish recording this podcast <laughs> I'm glad we got to that. Martha uh -huh. Coakley, what the hell is going on with her? Like she ran. So uh, for people who don't know, I mean, she ran for Senate mm -hmm. against Scott Brown, uh, you know, as a Democrat running for Senate. Or against, Scobro, I like to call him. Yeah. Against this guy who's just, you know, who was just kind of a drip. And she was so inept as a candidate, she that's lost. A, that's our ambassador to New Zealand right now, okay? Do not besmirch our New Zealand ambassador. <laughs> yeah. So Coakley, like, got smoked in the Senate race. She should have won easily. And then she goes and becomes a lobbyist for Jewel. Um, I mean, that's just insane. And doing the work I do, I know that there's like a lot of effort in messaging against Jewel for teenagers and middle school kids. Like there's a lot of t time and effort is spent in, you know, don't vape. Uh, and the fact that she's lobbying for it is just absolutely insane. Mm. So anyway, she doesn't come off so well in this documentary, to be she honest. Does but not. why would the government think that adults wouldn't like chocolate cake flavored things? <laughs> All right, that's off topic. But on that note, <laughs> let's do what we do and let's let our listeners know, should they check out... How to Fix a Drug Scandal. It's a four-part documentary on Netflix directed by the very lovely and talented, and I can say this because I got to meet her, Erin Lee Carr, who I just loved. I'm just not influencing my review either way, but she's lovely. Hello, Erin, if you're listening. What do you guys think of How to Fix a Drug Scandal? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Um, I'm going to go with thumbs up. You know, this is a case that I did follow when it happened in the news, but I, I liked seeing, you know, more of the people that were involved in sort of the behind the scenes. One of the things I wish they had mentioned, because uh, there was one part where they had a state police investigation in this case that was pretty shoddy. And this was right about the time, I think probably right before 
the uh, Mass State Police um, had their own scandal mm. for forging overtime slips. That's right. So there's some stuff going on in Massachusetts. So it was it was definitely really interesting. And, um, you know, four parts. It was um, definitely I, I went through it in like two days and uh, I would recommend it. Joey Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for How to Fix a Drug Scandal on Netflix. I, I give it a thumbs up. I sort of hinted at before. I think it's sort of the antidote to... Uh, the Tiger King, in that it's sort of sober and serious and appropriately scaled to its story. And it takes a look at, you know, a part of the justice system that maybe doesn't get a whole lot of consideration, but is like so, so important in making sure that people aren't convicted for things they didn't do. Mm. For all these reasons, I give it a thumbs up. Kevin Flynn, what about you? I'm a thumbs up as well. I think even though it did have some structural issues as it's trying to balance between the two stories and whether or not um, they did justice to either of them, I do think this came off as a, a very solid four-part series. Uh, Toby's right. Uh, this is an issue that we don't hear an awful lot about, about the part of the justice system that's supposed to be about science and you know free of interpretation. And this also had a lot of really interesting um, characters in it. We have... Luke Ryan and his, his different clients, and even a lot of the district attorneys who commented were also uh, rather candid, I think, not defensive. I I think for the ones that weren't really sort of wrapped up directly in this, yeah. they could really sort of- We know of, who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say her name. I'm so angry with that woman. <laughs> but this is another case of, you know, like we say, uh, justice be done though the heavens fall. Hmm. And it's a difficult thing to do, but this is the one of those stories where the consequence for the actions- are huge, and you wonder if, because of that consequence, do you go back and excuse, cover up, deny, inveigle, obfuscate what had happened before? Yeah. Great questions. I, I, I think people will enjoy this binge. I think they will, too. I'm going to just second everything all three of you said and add one more thing. This thing is beautifully made. The cinematography is gorgeous. The opening credits are gorgeous. The scoring is gorgeous. Does make the, you want to visit Western Massachusetts? Like... The, I've been in Western Massachusetts plenty. I'm good. But like the whole thing is just, it's just, it's beautifully, it's like just beautifully, the art of it is really beautiful. And I think that for a lot of true crime documentaries that we watch, like um, we talked recently about the trials of Gabriel Fernandez, which we also all gave up a four thumbs up too, but like that had a little bit of rough edges. We talked about the, like the repeating B-roll and all mm -hmm. that stuff. This doesn't have it. This is just a beautifully crafted film. And I think that that puts it on yet another level where it's telling this intimate but sweeping story through this very specific lens about a woman that's sort of at the center of a crime scandal, which is fascinating. But it's just beautifully made, lovely to watch. So, yeah, a big thumbs up for me for How to Fix a Drug Scandal from Netflix. Moving on. The problem is we have very different philosophies about how to move forward. Well, that's going to happen in a marriage, isn't it? Especially if business is involved. But, but in this case, the ramifications are much more serious. Wendy has a, a much higher tolerance uh, for risk than I do. When we last left Marty Bird and Wendy Bird and their family, they had succeeded in opening their riverboat casino, allowing them to placate both the Kansas City mob and the Snells and to continue laundering money for a Mexican drug cartel. Why should I be worrying about this now? Because... You might very well be dead in six months. 
In season three of Netflix's Ozark, a drug war in Mexico has put additional pressure on the birds to clean up Del Rio's dirty money. But before they can begin laundering, the FBI sets up shop in the casino to audit the Missouri Bell's finances. This is an integrated audit of your whole operation. A team of forensic accountants who will supervise every casino transaction as it happens. Every invoice and receipt, they'll be there when it's printed. Every hour, they'll count the chips on the floor. Adding to their problems, lawyer and frenemy Helen Pierce has moved to the Ozarks to keep a closer eye on the bird's business. Wendy's troubled brother Ben makes an unexpected visit, and Emmy Award winner Julia Garner returns as trashy, foul-mouthed, and lovable Ruth, Marty's unlikely confidant. The new uh, FBI agent, she's good. I, I, just, I don't know how we're going to be able to move money through here. Mm. That's what you want to tell me? That's why you called me up here? Well, also, I should not have yelled at you for um, helping out Wendy. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, I was out of the loop. Things were moving fast. I'm not your fucking marriage counselor. Ozark continues to add conflict on top of conflict, complicating all of Marty's attempts to keep his family safe and to extricate themselves from these entanglements that threaten their lives. We are going to spoil season three of Ozark. So if you haven't watched it yet, you can go to our spoiler-free reviews by jumping to the time code in our show notes. So, guys, it is rare for us to review a third season of a thing. Let's be real. Mm-hmm. And I think that our review of season two of Ozark was that we still like liked it overall, but that, like, you know. Could Did it have the punch of the first season? I'm just going to say it. I loved this season of Ozark. I think it's super fun. Kevin, it is a challenge, though, now to do, some in some ways, more so than a second season, a third season of a story like this, right? Yeah, you always have to, you know, answer, like, what now? Because we've done that thing and this thing and, you know, how do we keep making these relationships and these business entanglements? How do we keep making them different and interesting? And, you know, they continue to add new storylines and problems this season. What they're good about is whenever they come up with a way to solve one conflict, the way to do that creates another conflict and another storyline. So it's forever entangling. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, you can watch it for 10 episodes. Mm. What about you, Toby? What do you think about, you know, the problems that come with, you know, when you build a show based on, oops, we're in trouble again, you know, and that is the premise of the show is that we keep digging a hole deeper and we're in more and more and more complicated kinds of trouble. What do you think about the way that they dealt with this in the season three? You know, did it work for you? Uh, yeah, I, I think it definitely did. I think they did a, a couple things. One was bringing in the character of Ben, who vastly complicates everything. And then they also, it, and it's slow at times and kind of subtle, but there starts to be a rearranging of alignments, especially between the birds and Ruth. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't happen all at once. It, it's kind of the slow cleaving away of things and Ben Ben plays a little bit of a part of it and the way they react to certain things that happen to her like when uh, Frank Jr. puts her in the hospital and uh, when she sort of reunites with uh, Wyatt I think that was smart and I think they they needed to do it and, and when the when the season ends you see the new the new sides mm. have been drawn so you you kind of have a sense of you know, what the stakes are going to be and, and who's going to be competing for them in the next season. 
and it's it's vastly different than it was at the beginning of this season. Follow-up question about Ruth for you, Toby. Yes. You know, I think we all agree that Julia Garner is, like, just a terrific actress. Like, it, she's not in anything. Like, she just completely grabs your attention every minute she's on the screen. Every tick Even of her- Even in Dirty John. Yeah, every tick of her facial expression, every nuance of every line delivered. Like, one of my favorite parts of uh, season three was when, you know, Ben says, you know, I'm sorry you got my family dragged into this. She was like, I was a criminal long before I met your fucked up family. Like, she's <laughs> yeah. pitch perfect. Um, yeah. But she definitely, like, there's, like, a real heart to this character where she wants to be loved, like, so badly. And, you know, th- initially when she meets the birds, there's this sort of sense of, like, she's betraying them and she knows it the whole time. But that's because she wants to be loved by her dad, who's, like, completely fucked up and in prison. And then when she kind of, like, gets on the bird side, they don't stand up for her the way, like, for her love is... You would kill somebody for me. Like, that's what love means to her because she killed somebody for the people she loves. Like, isn't that like so incredibly poignant? And even though it's like, you know, ham fisted over the top, all that stuff, it's also like it makes total sense that that sort of realignment again. Like, it's believable, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's one of the good things about the show is that even though the events may be over the top, uh, I think the psychology of the main characters is pretty precisely drawn so that they're they're complicated the things they do make sense like it's revealed enough so that you can watch the mistakes that people are making and, and I'm just thinking about in Ruth in particular like you can watch the mistakes that are being made by Marty in particular and understand why that's a mistake for him to do that certain thing right or on the other hand why some little thing he's doing that he doesn't really think about too much may mean a lot to her. Right. And I think that that that's a sign of good writing, right? Is that they don't they don't have to hit you over the head with it. You're so sort of knowledgeable about the ins and outs of the characters that that you can understand how they're going to respond to things. And then there's that added layer of the fact that that there's some subtlety to the way they're drawn. So it's not sort of like such a knee jerk thing, but it's like you really sort of empathize with them. No, I agree. And as speaking of love and speaking of psychology, Wendy and Marty, who haven't had a real marital relationship for the entirety of this show, you know, the setup of the show is that she betrayed him and he betrayed her. You know, she was cheating on him and he was laundering money. It's this double betrayal. Mm-hmm. They end up running away. They are never really in love, you know, for real. The whole time we see them in this show. And this season sees them in marriage counseling with a uh, quasi-grifter psychologist who also seems to be actually doing psychology (laughs) and marital counseling with them. What did you think of those couch scenes in poor Sue's house as they went to this uh, therapy? And of course, both of them are bribing Sue to get get her to say what they want. What do you think about that? I kind of wish for her sake they'd been using better help um, so that she was still alive. But, you know, it's it's kind of funny. I mean, it's like, you know, they're definitely, you know, I feel like that the dynamics between them this season, you know, we start off the season, and I feel like Wendy is definitely more in the driver's seat and more ambitious and they're going to therapy. And, and in the beginning, I love how they're trying to sort of like, talk about their life in such a way like she has no idea that they're just like a criminal empire and um it you know and then as it evolves and then you know they have this gigundous fight that's the end of that and then she's driving her you know little fancy sports car the thing was i actually think she was like legitimate and doing a good job at what she did despite the fact that 
both of them were trying to pay her off. I felt like she, despite that, was still trying to do legitimate counseling with them. So it was just sort of sad when, you know, even the hitman got some good counseling out of her. And he's like, <laughs> she was a good listener. And I'm like, oh, my God. She's very helpful. But I thought that was really interesting because, you know, in the beginning, you think as you're watching this, there is no hope for this couple. They're in, in therapy. Clearly, this is not going anywhere. And then as the season progresses and Wendy then flips and is in a really difficult situation with her brother, all of a sudden you see them sort of reconnect in a way that we haven't seen them connect kind of authentically. Um, he says he loves the series. her. He yeah. says he loves her, which we never hear before. Yeah. But what prompts that? Exactly. I mean, it's all about getting her home after she orders the murder of her brother. It's, it's so twisted it's that so the twisted. closest they ever are is after she gets her brother murdered. So, Kevin, I have a question for you, Kevin, that like you may feel like I'm like trying to trap you with, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. Breaking Bad okay. has, you know, Walter White's wife, Skylar, mm-hmm. was really mistreated. If any character was mistreated by a showrunner, it was Walter White's wife, Skylar, in Breaking Bad who, first of all, doesn't know about his drug business. And then when she he when she does know, she sets up the mechanism to sort of like launder the money and like be the business side of it. But the fans hated her. Vince Gilligan did nothing to sort of help the character. Uh, you know, he tried to sort of paint her as this like, you know, ambitious, quasi-controlling, complex woman, but just really didn't serve that character well in a way that has been talked about a lot. I'm not the first person to say that. Wendy is starkly ambitious, whip smart, clearly sort of the person who thinks on the chessboard five moves ahead. And Ben has this very revealing moment about her where he says, you know, the Wendy that you thought was the Wendy you knew wasn't the Wendy I knew as a kid. Like, it's this one. That's the Wendy I knew. Like, it's this, you know, it's this one, this like, you know, ruthless one. I don't think this show is doing Wendy, the woman character, disservice because I, even though she's sometimes horrible, as is Marty, I still root for her and like her and want her to succeed, even when I don't agree with what she's doing in terms of like how it plays. What do you think? I'm just curious because I know that. Like, I think I... that is your opinion. <laughs> you don't like Wendy? So what I want to talk about. What? No, huh? What? You don't like Wendy? No, I do like Wendy. You want to talk no, about she's... Wyatt and Darlene, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> hey, creepy six. <laughs> creepy six scene. Ah, I cannot unsee that. Um, no, but 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 I mean to your point, I think Wendy and Marty as characters are written as opposite people. Yeah, which is you know what you want. If they were both the same, there'd be no conflict. There'd be no difference between them. And so he is very, and you see, you could definitely sort of get the whole Jason Bateman uh, vibe Gestalt, off of him. Yeah. <laughs> that you know, okay, and he's sort of introverted and uh, bottled up, but thinking all the time. And you know, she's a little more ambitious. And so at times, both of those are their weak points and sometimes with their strengths. And her ambition, sometimes it gets a little f- too far out. And uh, Marty might be too passive sometimes in trying to break the system. And of course, we love Ruth. And Julia Gardner won the Emmy and she'll probably be nominated again. But, I mean, I think the season belongs to the actor who plays Ben. Oh, he's so wonderful. Tom Pelfrey. Oh, my God. Maybe Knoxville. I still know a few people there. And 
where all the hospitals are. And I can really lay low. I can lay low. Younger, hotter Keanu Reeves, Tom Pelfrey. It's just way too easy to get like all cartoony when you're playing crazy, mm. right? You can write it really bad and you can overact it. Uh, he was much more nuanced and human, I thought. And they just he also wrote him so well where he was like doing that. He's better. He's worse. He's better. He's worse. That's by It's very frustrating. Yeah. yeah. It made it very real. And so, you know, by the end, you know, the, the viewer is like saying before Wendy says it, you come to the realization, yeah, you just got to, you can't, you can't go and hide them. You just got to take them out. Well, I mean, it's tragic. I mean, anybody, and by the way, people listening to the show should know that like, I have a lot of experience with mental illness in my own family and bipolar mm-hmm. disorder in particular. That character was played so pitch perfect, so pitch perfect in terms of the disorder. The idea that they had to quote, put him down like Lenny in Mice and Men or <laughs> yeah. whatever at the end was in some ways, like, you're like, this person's just ill. Like, he's mm-hmm. just ill. Like, literally, if you got him back on his meds or whatever, he'd be fine. But the stakes of just spilling the beans once in this cartel situation are enough. It got therapists, like, you know, murdered. It got, you know, think about poor Darlene. Think about the real estate transaction people. The guys, the people who were like... Like negotiating with that casino, Mm -hmm. that couple, they were fine until the stakes got too high. And then the wife ends up tumbling down the hill and the husband's like, "Ah, I guess that was for the best. (laughs) I mean, it's insane. The stakes are so high that as a viewer, and this is what, as Toby said, a hallmark of good writing, that even as you know that Ben, and you know know Ben's going to die from the first scene he's in, you know he's going to because they telegraph it like. Well, the whole reason you bring on new characters is so you can take away some characters. Yeah, yeah. So- but but yeah. they telegraph it. It's, it's it's the hallmark of good writing when you love a character, but you also understand like you understand what had what happened. You're not rooting for it, but right. you get the you get the dynamics behind it. So we have to talk about Wyatt and Darlene. Do we, Laura? Yeah, Wyatt, who's like twelve, and Darlene, who's like a hundred. Of course, I'm exaggerating. Yeah, have what might be the least sexy sex scene since Harold and Maude. Uh, what did you Looks think like of you that twist? <laughs> Wow. What did you think about that that storyline and the way it played out? What did you think, Laura Bricker? All I could hear, there's like a Garth Brooks song that kind of speaks to that whole relationship called That Summer. And it's about the young guy and he's like working on the farm and the lonely widow woman. And she's hell bent to make it on her own. And then one night... She shows him the ways of the world. It was like literally ripped from a Garth Brooks song. I'm like not even kidding you. Uh, you know, it's interesting because Darlene was one of my least favorite characters. Okay. Oh, yeah. Like mm-hmm. last two seasons. She's she crazy. She's evil. She's a fucking bitch. And this season I'm like, she's kind of nice. And she shot that guy's penis off, but she did it in like <laughs> in support of Ruth. And like, I don't know. I'm kind of liking her this season, except for that's like this, the weird sex relationship with Wyatt is a little disturbing. Because she's actually unhinged, Laura. That's the whole point. But no, she seems, uh, compared to everybody else in the show, she <laughs> seems to be the sanest one, I'm just saying. That's good so, writing. There's one point, I can't remember who is who is visiting, uh, and she says, why don't I go get you uh, a glass of tea or a glass of water? Yeah. And I was like, oh, fuck. Is she going to do that thing where she drops it, and then when they go to help her pick it up, she's going to cut his throat? <laughs> <laughs> but... But that didn't happen. My favorite scene of Wyatt and Darlene was when they were in bed together and he was just like reading a book like a teenage boy. 
And she, yeah. and it was or just an old man. But just like that tableau of them, that to met the domesticity of them being together in the house, like after they first have sex, and you just see that. To me, the sex was less disturbing than the domesticity between them. Like he looks, that actor looks so young. He's so skinny. Yeah. He looks like a 14-year-old kid. Did you see what he was reading? What was he reading? He was reading Solaris <laughs> by, I think, Stanislaw Lem. It's like a, it's a sci-fi book about a planet, like a sentient planet. If you go back to season one, yeah, he was the- uh, Into science fiction. Yeah. He was the smart one. He was off to school. Well, before we get to the thing that I know we all want to talk about, can we just talk about how awesome it is still that Marty and Wendy's kids are just like- part of the family business charlotte's doing the money drops and like yeah. jonah is like his drone like drone security. Got his cryptocurrency and yeah it's like yeah for, for every show that is a thing where it's like we don't tell the kids anything the fact that this show goes the opposite way and they tell the kids everything it's so bananas and i find it like so unbelievably satisfying and then they bitch to each other about it <laughs> yeah Season four, Jonah's going to save them all. That's that's what I'm going for. He's got like he's probably got millions by season four. In he's his got so business. much money, and he's got yeah. so much Bitcoin. It's ridiculous. Well, we have to talk about the way the season ended. And if you've listened thus far and you have not watched Ozark season three, stop. You said we would spoil this, but I would encourage you to go to the time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review because. This does have one of the most shocking endings and and just the way that it was that it went played out endings yeah. of any TV finale in recent history. Lara Bricker thoughts about the rapid surprise dispatching of Helen. I mean, I'm I personally wasn't surprised she was dispatched, but the way that it was done Because you took yeah. you looked at the spoilers first. That's That's why. true. I oh, was surprised. So I was I was surprised. No, I was really surprised. And and I have to say, like this season, they she played the character so well because I hated her by the end of the season. I'm like, oh, I fucking hate her. Um, <laughs> but I didn't want to see her head explode. I was like, oh man, I hated her. But that was a little rough. I mean, she had a kid and all. But I think it was just set up so perfectly because you you know you're watching this and you're thinking, you know, Marty and Wendy are going to their demise. You see the letter. That's signed from the FBI. You have the FBI agent calling Marty and you're like, and he still gets on the plane and you're like, oh, this is just fucking horrible. And then that ending just came out to me. It came out of left field. and I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> and then I'm like, maybe Marty knew something when he was getting on the plane. Hmm. Or he was just like, what the fuck? At this point, what am I going to do? I got to get on the plane, you know? Mm. Um, but it was, that was a really good ending. And I think... You know, now it sort of sets us up for where do we go from here? I, I don't know. What do you think, Toby, when you saw that final scene in Ozark season three? Uh, I I did not see it coming. Mm. Um, Neither did Helen. So, <laughs> clearly. And that was probably the, for the best as far as she was concerned. <laughs> Why fly her all the way down there just to do that? Like, was it like a last minute decision? She, she could, so the cartel guy can see that it got done. Oh, okay. And to make the point in front of the birds. Yeah. You know, it was sort of it was sort of a counterpoint to what I thought was the weakest part of the series, which is when Marty goes down to Mexico Agreed. and they basically throw him in a dungeon for some indeterminate amount of time. And it's like, what what's going on? You want to break me? Is that what you want? You want me to tell you the truth? You want me to confess? I don't trust my wife, and I fear you. You scare the fucking shit out of me, the both of you do, with your fucking plans about a legitimate casino. I've been against that since day one. 
Like, wouldn't they just kill him like they do everybody else who they no. have a hard time with? Yeah, no, that, and I thought that was revealing. And you realize later that was a foreshadowing what was going to happen. He was too valuable to kill. He has a special skill. And I think it was sort of shadowed also in the video game backstory throughout the season. He has a special skill that we as viewers forget about because of his character. But the cartel guy knows he has it and isn't going to kill him as a result. But yes, I agree it was weak. But then at the end, to me, it made more sense, even though, you know, he was definitely like, first it gets the hose again, like for too many days there, right? It took me out of the flow of the story, quite honestly. I was like, why is this happening? Yeah, 100, 100. Can I just say about the shot of the shot? Yep. Um, Because when you're watching it, you were following the cameras, is tracking with the big bad guy, walking towards the birds. And just for a say, you know, we can see that the two of them are walking next to Helen. Yeah. But the frame of the camera pushes past Helen. So we're aware that she's just off the frame. So the violence of the shot, we don't see that. Right. We see the blood spatter, which is crazy. The brains. The brains. Just the thing everywhere. The mess, which was unnecessary. <laughs> it's not the professional thing. Uh but it was, you know, it was. It made it not only surprising but a little startling. Yeah. Because you couldn't see all of it, but you knew exactly. Your brain filled in everything that you didn't see. But you're right. That was the message sent to the bird. That's why it was done that way. Because it was a message. Like, you're going to have this on you. It was on you. It's on we, all of us. We chose you. Yeah. And now it's all over you. Right? Yeah. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out Ozark Season 3 on Netflix? And more important, if they haven't checked out one and two, should they go back and binge the whole thing because of season three? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for Ozark season three on Netflix. Uh, So two thumbs up for Ozark. I absolutely love Ozark. I love this show. I love uh, the characters in the show. I love the way that... You know, you really feel um, a certain way about some of the characters in the show because they're portrayed so well. And the plot is just fantastic. And it's just, you know what? This was something that I watched all last weekend and it was like a great escape from everything else that's going on in the world. And, uh, you know, I would highly recommend it. Toy Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Ozark Season 3 on Netflix? Yeah, I give it a thumbs up too. I thought it was really strong. Um, As we talked about before, I, I found it really affecting, more affecting than I usually find things in shows like this. And there was like a kind of a quality that I've recognized from from friends I've I've had who've had mental health issues where they don't understand what's going wrong or, or what they're doing that's wrong, but understand that they are doing things that are wrong. That it's just you know it, it's 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 heartbreaking. Um, and and they really managed to uh, show that I thought in a very sort of effective and uh, a way that rang true to me. But everything else, I mean, the acting's really good, the plotting's really strong, and I'm looking forward to season four. Kevin Flynn, thumbs up or thumbs down for Ozark season three on Netflix. I'm a thumbs up. I think uh, it's just as good as season one, and they do a great job with you know the coming dread, and they're able to put that into motion. Great characters. Can never get enough of Ruth. Ben was a fantastic addition. And the way they continue to move the chess pieces, change alignments and allegiances. They did a wonderful job of that in season three. And I'm looking forward to season four. So when we first reviewed this show, we and a lot of other reviewers called it like Breaking Bad Light, right? Season one. 
It was sort of a lighter. You might have said that. No, yeah. you said it too. A lighter take on a criminal enterprise. It didn't get into like you know the sort of the gritty, you know, you know Breaking Bad is sort of seen as this like seminal, like important piece of TV, and it's held up here like with The Sopranos and The Wire as like one of the greatest shows of all time. And when this show came out, a lot of reviewers, including us, sort of compared it to Breaking Bad and and saw it as a sort of lighter take. This show has so outgrown its comparisons to Breaking Bad. To me, season three was not as good as season one. Season three was better than season one for me. It was tautly written. It was transcendent. The acting is extraordinary. One of my favorite things about Ozark is how they use the setting. This weird Lake of the Ozarks place that's like both rich and poor in a way that is totally believable that there could be these like million dollar mansions in this place. At the same time, there could be Ruth's trailer at this place. It is just beautiful. Uh, the whole casino in the boat situation, the political campaigns. If you think about all the details that are in the setting of this place and the way they actually use them, the industrial complex where Frank and Frank Jr. work, it's incredible. I love it. I love everything about Ozark right now. I think if this show keeps going the way that it does, it's going to be up there with Breaking Bad and The Sopranos. I think it's a fantastic show. I can't recommend it enough. Huge thumbs up for me. And now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of the week. Of the week. Smart car, smart phone, smart doorbell, smart thermostat. Get ready for the smart toilet. This prototype from researchers at Stanford will use cutting edge technology to monitor your family's bathroom health. For those doing number one, high-speed cameras will measure the speed and flow, while a retractable urinalysis strip captures and tests your pee. For those doing a number two, a pressure sensor on the seat activates more cameras to capture what goes in and measures the elapsed time between the first dookie and the last. But how will the smart toilet know whose excrement belongs to whom? That's what the last camera is for. It'll identify each family member's individual <laughs> anus. What? <laughs> this isn't real. I didn't read this before this show. The researchers call this biometric information <laughs> an anal print. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, how else can you tell people apart except for their <laughs> except for their balloon knot? <laughs> but <laughs> in this world of identity theft, how do they protect the day? <laughs> <laughs> is this an onion but, story? But in this rule of identity theft, how do they protect the data related to your apple fritter? <laughs> the information is uploaded to an encrypted cloud service and uses two-party authentication. That's right. You'll get an alert on your phone that says something like, Is this your gooch? <laughs> Or, Jesus Christ, or maybe it's one of those CAPTCHA photo puzzles. Which of these pictures are of a sheriff's badge? The study came out in this week's 
Journal of Nature, but was immediately picked up by Vice. Of course. <laughs> of course it was. So, panel, oh, no. here's my question for you. <laughs> Would you buy a toilet that takes pictures of your family's assholes? <laughs> Laura oh. Bricker, what do you think? <laughs> I don't even know. Um... Well, you know, maybe it would be independent verification of uh, which members of the family are assholes. I don't know. (laughs) What about you, Toby? Would you buy a toilet took photos of your family's assholes? Yeah, I sort of had the same response that Lara does. It's like, you're calling my family assholes? (laughs) Um, But I, I, I feel like this is some kind of like weird sort of employment scheme for that guy who had to uh, erase all the buttholes from the Cats movie. Ah, yeah. Oh, my God. What about you, Kevin? Would you buy a toilet that took photos of all your family's assholes? I don't want to see those chocolate starfish anywhere. Can you imagine? Oh, no. I just want to know, do you upload that to your newsfeed or your story? <laughs> and there'd be a subreddit so fast. Yes. Well, we should probably end it on that note before we do Laura Bricker. Do we have a cat of the week this week? We do, and this cat's not an asshole. So our cat is Chester, who was nominated by Sinead. And Chester is a one-year-old Maine Coon from Ireland with a propensity for mischief and a love of cheddar cheese. Um, He is both handsome and massive, and we like to use our friend's babies as a unit for measurement. They have pictures. But the best thing is they made this video that was submitted of this cat, this black and white Maine Coon cat, jumping over increasingly higher toilet paper wall. I saw that. Like a horse in show jumping. Like it reminded me of there's this like show jumping contest where they have the giant wall. I think it's at like the Washington International Horse Show. And that was what this was. And it was like slow motion. And the last one was like, that cat is never making it over. And he did. So that video in itself is amazing. And it's a really great thing to go watch right now. So thank you, Sinead, for nominating Chester. And we also talk about the fact that Maine Coon Cats are fucking enormous and it's always fun mm. to watch them on videos. Yeah. All right, Laura Bricker, if people want to reach out to you and submit their dogs to be Cat of the Week next week, how can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and ask you questions about your amazing UFO Asshole. podcast, <laughs> Strange Arrivals. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, folks want to reach out to you and pitch you stories that then I will read cold on this podcast and not be able to get through them. How can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Gruntle. <laughs> and if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you strenuously to join our amazing Facebook community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We're making a lot of live video content right now. It is super duper fun. Support the show on Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. You'll get the Crime Writers On After Show. Married with podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast about a non-story, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast, plus Kevin Flynn's bonus podcast. What's it called, Kevin? The Coldest Cut. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. Our line editor is the very handsome and no longer bearded Henry Lavoie. Our social media manager and newsletter maven is fellow Taco Bell stan who can't currently eat Taco Bell, Meredith Plunkett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where a really old woman and a really young man get it on. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. 
Um, that's weird. So I have I have five um, green stars. Laura, what do you think is going on? It sounds like your voice is pitched down like two steps. Who's, uh, whose computer is that? Is that your new computer? No, I have. This is the same computer I've been using. Your old computer. The I think on the way maybe out? you just need to. Can you just do me a favor? And I was a fucking pain in the ass. Can you log off and yeah. restart your computer? Yep. Hold on. Okay. Yeah. No, she sounds like uh, the what's her face from uh, Theranos. <laughs> <laughs> like she was just. Do- <laughs> she sounds like she's doing an impression of an adult when you're a kid, and you're like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Wilkin is excused from school today. She sounds like she's doing the impression that you do of Toby, Kevin. What? <laughs> no, I'm, just kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> this is Deputy Van Halen. <laughs> Is in crime media. media.